Chapter 10. Insurmountable. There I was again, back in the psychologist's office, me on the bench, him in his chair. We were solely on a last-name basis because at the time I was, as he described, erecting a wall between my vulnerability and other people, even those I knew prior to the suicide attempt. He was Dr. Harvard, and I was Mr. Garbarino. Of course, he knew my first name, but I'd urged him not to say it. No familiarity could be born between us. Not a chance. He was correct about the walls. I see you've been losing weight, Dr. Harvard commented. That's correct, I answered plainly. I betrayed as little emotion to him as possible. I didn't want him reading into every little expression I made, so each week when I knew I would be coming here, I would spend an hour mentally pasting on my deadpan look. I wanted nothing to be determined by my face. If it didn't come out of my mouth, he was not going to learn about it. I must commend you, he said. I've had plenty of people come in here with that same steel-faced resolve, but none have had the willpower to hold it as long as you. I think the only person that's trumped your time has been a cop. Trumped? I caught the past tense there. Had I slipped up somehow? Do not feel discouraged, he said. Cops have been trained to hold even more, broader, scarier expressions. You have nothing to be ashamed over. I betrayed pride and anger. I narrowed my eyes and leered at Dr. Harvard for just a moment before repasting my deadpan back on, but he'd seen the slip-up. If I hadn't done it before, I'd done so this time for certain. He chuckled lightly. Works like a charm every single time. What are you talking about? I was curious, but my face didn't display that. Like I said, I get people coming to me with such expressions as the one you continue to wear as I speak. I've learned to develop games to make them betray themselves, even they try their best not to. If I wanted, I could unravel your mask in under five minutes, but that is not why we're here. We're here to get to the reasons behind your attempt at suicide. What is it you feel you can't solve? Excuse me? I kept my mask on, regardless of his opinion on the matter. When someone quits at anything, it is because of a roadblock they believe to be insurmountable. What roadblock plagues you? What was he talking about? I had no roadblocks. Did I? Dende seemed to think so. His final words seemed to be the answer to a question I hadn't asked him. Did he foresee this, or did he just want to give me the answer while he still had the chance? I could feel that if I continued on this train of thought, that my mask would be worthless, so I abandoned it for a moment. I can honestly say that I do not know what you're referring to, I said in my defense. And I believe... He sat for word, wiggling a pen between his fingertips. However, we now have something to focus on. Whatever you find to be hampering you is coming undone. You told me in one of our previous sessions that you've had trouble trying to lose weight. I believe the issue was more mental than physical. I don't think you could lose weight because you didn't want to. But right now, something has changed. Your body is finally obeying the orders of your mind and you're losing pounds. But that sounds more like a wall was torn down rather than erected. Dr. Harvard was confusing me. Not torn down, renovated. The blockage is just focused on another aspect of your life now. I believe it and the wall you've made are related. Are you positive about that? Not positive enough. I want you to reflect on our conversation we just had and think of what it spells for your life. There must be something you can think of that could be the cause. I nodded. I'll get right on that, Dr. Harvard. I wouldn't, but that was because I didn't know where to start. How could I analyze myself? Subjective analyses could be riddled with inaccuracies. I could simply change a few adjectives around while relaying the message to make myself sound better. I'd ask Riley, but our relationship had served its purpose in my eyes. I needed a place to stay. He was a person I could ask for such a favor. I asked. I stayed. I moved on. If he reached out to me, I would answer, but me going to him, that wasn't going to happen anymore. 
I was a little late for dinner, but I think that Lex and Andre would understand. The two of them were as close as friends as I wanted right now. I was familiar with them, but not so close that it would cripple me to lose them, like it was with my mother and Amber and Dende. My mother caused me to be emotionally crippled long-term, but I was so shaken that I couldn't move for the rest of that day. Amber's leaving me was a long-expected journey, so it left me only minorly physically crippled. I had very few physical spaces to turn to, so I was prone in a shelter-my-way sense. Dende's passing had left me so drained that it was a miracle I had strength to even argue with any of Amber's long rants about devotion and compromise. Lex had prepared one of my favorite dishes of hers, grilled chicken marinated in lemon juice, garnished with basil and diced mushrooms, a side of peppered corn, and lemonade. I know I said that lemons were the most heinous of all fruits, but the citrus flavoring seemed to complement the chicken very well. The tanginess of the mushrooms in their tiny proportions balanced the flavor out nicely. The peppered corn was just fantastic by itself, with or without the chicken. And lemonade? Well, who could hate lemonade? Byproduct of the dastardly fruit or not. So Lex, how goes it at the daycare? I asked. I was still keeping my wall strong, but for a social gathering such as this, a different mask was required, one where I looked like I was having a good time. I mean, I was, favorite dish and all before me, but the mask made it seem less real and better for me in the long run. It's going pretty good. We're getting more and more families bringing their children to our doors, so business has steadily been improving. Lex had struggled about as much as I did to find a job when she came back to America. She decided that if she couldn't find a job, why not start one for herself? She found a few other people on Craigslist in need of employment, and together, the three women made their own daycare facility called Sun Valley Sitters. The main service is to house and entertain children of clients, but Lex then thought of adding a sideline service of loaning out temp babysitters to families more active at night. One of our babysitters, Lainey, she just got a job as a steady babysitter for this wealthy family out in Burbank. That's amazing, I said, but I didn't care. I was careful not to say that out loud. But enough about me, she said. How are things going for you guys at the moving company? I get by, I said, hoping to keep things modest. Andre had other plans. Are you kidding me? Get by? He turned to his sister-in-law. This guy puts on the muscles and shreds the pounds like taking breaths. One day he came in and I thought we had hired someone new without my approval. I mean, look at him. He faced me again. Jack, stand up. I did. Look at those arms. They're getting closer to being bigger than mine. And his legs, he whistled. It's like he was being slowly replaced, piece by piece, exchanging parts of his soul in return. Lex giggled. You didn't make a deal with the devil now, did you, Jack? I had to laugh myself. I rolled up my sleeves and prepared to enjoy the meal, when Lex looked stunned for a moment, staring at my bicep. What's wrong? Is your arm bleeding? she asked, her voice shaky from being alarmed. I looked at what she was referring to and understood her confusion. Oh no. This is a tattoo. Andre raised his eyebrows. Since when did you get a tattoo? I got it about maybe two weeks ago. I rolled up my sleeve all the way and showed it to them. It was a dark line with a red mane, encircled by a red square. There were some clouds fluttering about the lion, too. Why a lion? Lex asked. Oh, my middle school's mascot was a lion. I'm starting to have the body that I wished I had back then, so I figured it was a good way to symbolize my change, even though many years have passed since. I think it's a cool idea, Andre remarked. I have scars from my middle school years from jumping fences and raiding junkyards for scraps of metal to build my own bikes. I remember those times fondly whenever I see one of the scars in the mirror. I wish my memories were positive. While I do have pride in what I've been going through, the memories of where I started at were a pain in my ass. I wish I could forget them, but roots are roots, and they stick with you, no matter how badly you wish you could block them off. Lex and Andre gave me confused looks when I suddenly trailed off, but I believe I was having a breakthrough, or an epiphany about what Dr. Harvard and I were discussing earlier. He said that there was a new roadblock, 
somewhere that allowed my body to begin dropping the pounds, and it could be linked to my childhood. That was the biggest thing I shared in common with Dende, so he'd be able to know if it still affected me or not, since I'm sure it affected him, even when he died at my feet. I politely excused myself from the table to make a quick call to Dr. Harvard. I'd asked him if he could squeeze me in tomorrow or the next day for a session. He said tomorrow was no good, but the day after he could pencil me in for a session lasting from 3.30 to 4.30 p.m. I agreed to the time, and we terminated the call. I returned to the dinner table, and Lex, Andre, and I continued to discuss my tattoos. I told them that I was thinking of a second one, but had no idea what it would be, or for that case, where it would be. Lex said that as long as it didn't make her panic if she only caught a glimpse of it, she was fine with the choice. Andre sort of gave a cheer, and then we banged our glasses together. I was glad I had that approval, but part of me wanted that approval-seeking phase to be over. I sought it from so many people, and yet no one wanted it from me. I spent all of the next day biding my time, thinking of what Dr. Harvard might actually discuss about my breakthrough, or what questions I could bring up to better help me understand my situation. Nothing seemed to spring out before me, so I guess playing it by ear was going to be my play. I'd have to make sure to plaster on my deadpan mask before the session. I needed a much better one this time, more impenetrable than before. Hey, Dr. Harvard, I said when I rolled into the office. His assistant shut the door behind me. I sat down on the couch, refusing to lay down right away. Hi, Mr. Garbarino. How are you doing? He asked so plainly it almost startled me. I looked into his face and caught on to what he was doing. He was imitating my deadpan face perfectly, to a T. I shut my eyes slowly and inhaled that way, too. I needed to absorb my surprise at a snail's pace to avoid betraying shock. I'm doing fine, and yourself? Why did you request that we meet again this week? He turned and leered directly into my eyes that were so still that he'd clearly done this before. They were like the best of predators, waiting as frozen in place as stones, waiting for the most opportune time to strike. I believe I stumbled across the roadblock as you described it. Then what makes you so certain that you did? Are you positive? I'm not certain I did, and I'm not positive about anything, I said with the same cold detachment he was tossing my way. Very well, then. Will, tell me what you've learned. I'm all ears. It goes back to my roots. I believe that my previous roadblock was linked to my childhood, and that's why I couldn't lose weight. For some reason, I probably didn't want to, but now I can. However, it seems that now it's targeting me through my memories. I think I've been trying to section them off unconsciously. While trying to deny myself access to the bad ones, I'm locking them all away. That's an interesting story. And does that bother you? This time, he was the one who slipped up, but he made no move to correct his error. He stayed, leaned forward, keenly intrigued by my case. To be honest, more than I thought, I admitted. As much as I despise the things that happened to me, they did all shape me to the man that I am now, the man I've always been up to this point. And what man would that be? That question was yet to be answered. We went back and forth discussing that, but nothing we mentioned seemed to hit on what I was becoming now. That was my last time going to see Dr. Harvard. I appreciated his help, but I didn't need a psychologist any longer to tell me if I was going to go off the rails again. I knew I wouldn't. I had something about myself to discover, and I was on the verge of making a massive decision. It was two years away from its earliest conception, but I knew now that I wasn't going to run from anything. In fact, I was doing the opposite. I was running to what made me attempt to kill myself so I could confront it, challenge it, and overcome it. Chapter 11. My New Team In the two years since quitting my sessions with Dr. Harvard, I had fully thrown myself into the moving job. I was healthy for arguably the first time in my life like long-term healthy and not just those short periods of time sucking down terrible diet food and spending a ludicrous amount of hours at Neptune Fitness. I was feeling less and less need for my mask. I was looking and feeling better than I could recall ever being able to do, and I had friends. Lex and Andre. 
I wasn't planning to lose them, not if I could help it. There was one day when Andre had asked me what my secret was, what I was doing to shed nearly 150 pounds in just two years. I didn't have the answer then because I wasn't sure myself, but now I was. I researched it day and night, well, every night, during every waking hour of my days. I was doing what helped me shed the unnecessary girth. During the few hours at night I had to myself, I spent my time researching exactly why every part of my body seemed to love this new, for lack of a better word, workout. I mean, moving people every single day was not easy, certainly more of a hassle than the gym. When you're on the move, like on your feet, it grants more allowance for tension to build in one's muscles. From your legs up, weight shifts with every step. Each time you raise and lower a foot to the ground, the tension is spread to every fiber, every tendon, every ligament you own. At the gym, your body is stationary, absorbing all the tension in specific localized areas like your arms and chest. But working out this way, my way, was much better. There are a few examples that can be drawn from simple tasks that everyone who moves from home to home would know about, but just not the full potential behind it. Simply lifting boxes of materials, the repetitiveness of that activity, it's the basics of one of my new workout staples. Marching back and forth with 20 to 35 pound boxes while in motion does work a good number of muscles from your arms, back, chest, and your calves. Standing erect and using your legs to support more of the weight just increases the amount of muscles that can be built up in your lower body. Leaning back as you walk is a negative. Putting all that weight on your back is dangerous. Pooling such tension at the base of your spine could lead to paralysis, at least based off what I can understand of the six simple machines. If you have a lever and try to open a metal door with it with all your weight, it would either snap the lever which would either be a metal rod of some sort, maybe a crowbar. That would happen to someone's spine if they put too much pressure on it by lifting more than they're capable of too often and for an extended period of time. I'd actually come to make a game out of that particular exercise that Andre and I would play when he'd forced me to take a couple of days off only to make sure I avoided overdoing things. We hadn't given the game a name yet, but if you've heard of speed stacking, then you'll understand the dynamic much easier. Speed stacking is a game where being dexterous over strong counts. It involves the stacking and unstacking of cups in specific formations. The standard is 12 cups, but you can do it with more if you're trained enough. There are five main formations for the standard 12 cup set. 1, 10, 1, 3, 6, 3, 6, 6, 3, 3, 3, 3, 12. The 12 is the same as the 1, 10, 1, but the two cups on the sides are stacked right up against the 10, while the 1, 10, 1 leaves a fair amount of space between the 1s and 10 stacks. The game Andre and I invented isn't as complicated as that. We both stand at the ready, a stack of boxes at our sides. The goal of the game is to move the boxes from one stack to another, and then back again. The first one to deconstruct and then reconstruct the original stack is the winner. We were even in our win-loss ratios. Another of the exercises that I had come to love that Andre would share with me, this one we dubbed the couch relay. It involved, you guessed it, couches. We would both grab hold of one end of one of the spare couches we purchased just for this purpose. We would grab and raise the couch and run from one end of his backyard to the other. Each time we made it back to his back door, we would squat a little lower and do it again. When we first started this workout, we could only bend down so far that Lex was able to stand by us at eye level. Now, we were able to squat down to her waist and run from one end of the yard to his back door. Actually, with our lowered positions, it looked more like we were scuttling little crabs, moving sideways with our legs bent out at our sides. We're thinking of giving it a new name. Andre's desperate to call it the Crab Couch Race, but I thought we should leave the word crab out of it. Regardless of the name, the exercise would be a brilliant conditioner for those who run for a living. Soccer players could strengthen their legs at an incredibly fast rate. The tendons in their calves and shins 
would become a fortified mass of iron. If they couldn't before, they'd be able to split soccer balls with one powerful blow. The sound of the soccer ball popping would pale in comparison to the demonstration of pure muscle capacity. Runners, kickboxers, and swimmers could all do with stronger legs to propel themselves and strike harder than ever. I'm sure they had their own regimens that licensed coaches were strictly adhering them to, but it didn't mean my invention wouldn't be even a little helpful. While each of my workouts did target every muscle in the human anatomy, unless my nighttime research was failing me, each of my workouts do indeed target specific areas of the body more than others. The boxes have the arms and back, the couches have the legs and arms, and the chairs have the chest and arms. Oh, we haven't gone over chairs yet. Well, no time like the present. Chairs were more versatile in regards to the kinds of workouts Andre and I had concocted together. Well, I came up with them, and he would try to think of names, but so far, only my end seemed to be productive. A good way to think of it would be to say that chairs were the free weights of my style of exercise. One of the first exercises that Amber had showed me was one of the main ones that I used chairs for. I would raise them to my waist and hold them there for a second, raise the chair above, lower it to my shoulders, and then back down to my waist. The thing that made this better than an actual free weight was based off of the age-old adage, bigger is better. Since the chair had a better and more defined distribution of weight within it, it made for a better tool for physical exertion. Simply holding it at my waist, even without moving around, put more stress on my entire arm, not just my forearms. Doing squats with them over your head was a way to center the heat in your abdomen, squeezing it there, trapping it with the pressure of clenched, tight abs. As you slowly rose from the squatted position, the heat would explode from the relief and rush through all the neighboring muscles, looking for a safe shelter to reside in. It had many options and suitors. The heat would invite itself to your thighs, chest, and back. It took me some time to realize just what Andre was trying to do, but to me, this was just something I enjoyed doing. I wasn't hoping to do anything more than live out the rest of my life with him and Lex and a good bill of health at long last. It was Tuesday, and Andre had urged me into one of my forced off days. Lex was off at her own job, so I was alone when I turned the TV on. I'm glad I was, because seeing what I saw on the news's headlines shook me more than I thought it ever would. The headline read, Apple CEO Steve Jobs has passed away. I tuned it out after they said the words, due to pancreatic cancer, a health issue. Of all things, my childhood friend, who by any and all means was healthier than I was, died of an illness. I couldn't comprehend the meaning of that irony. I had almost died because of health when he, around that same time, dropped out of college to pursue his own goals. I didn't know he had dropped out at the time, but when he became the face of Apple, his life became an open book for anyone with a computer. And here he was, at the pinnacle of his career, and all of a sudden, to me at least, he was gone. I tried many different ways of rationalizing the situation. Okay, Steve Jobs was sometimes a proud kid. Maybe he only got more prideful as he grew up. He certainly had the right to be proud with a nice family, a wife and kids, and a multi-million dollar company that he started. I was as close as I was going to get to that set of goals years ago. But, right when he had so much to continue living for, to continue progressing and learning, whether it was as a father, husband, or entrepreneur, it didn't seem fair, and this, just like with my father, felt wrong. When a man had so much to live for, was that when he was meant to be taken from this world? Would a god, if there was indeed one out there, allow such wrongdoings to transpire? And not even just the god my father worshipped, maybe other gods out there were just as at fault for the deaths of great men. I was starting to think they only spared the weaker ones, the ones that they could find even more entertainment from. Perhaps that's why I was able to live when men and women, like Steve Jobs, my father and mother, and Dende, had to lose theirs. I didn't like it one bit. Another possibility that crept up on my mind was something I hadn't been able to recall until I found myself reciting Stevie out loud over and over. 
I was fooled to think of that version of him as they paraded a photo of him smiling the same way he did when I christened him with that nickname. It reminded me of Petey, the museum, and the gladiator statue. Petey told me that the gladiators were merely playthings for, what did he call them? Hedonistic something or others that took pleasure in watching the soldiers battle one another to the death. Was that what we were doing on this earth? battling one another in one way or form to the death? Or were we all racing to death faster? If so, in my scope of the board, I was starting to fall in last place. My father hit a home run with his quick leave of us. Next came my mother, although she was tagged out. Dende was trying to steal second when the glove caught him on his right breast. Steve Jobs, I couldn't even think of a suitable analogy for him. It didn't seem like his death fit the board. It seemed wrong, a blasphemy, as if the rules suddenly changed. Yes, Steve was part of my world at one point, but as far as any overseeing, all-knowing God, or hedonist asshole knew, we were f as far as done with each other as two people could be. Well, other than Amber and I, but I was hoping that thought stayed solely inside my head. As bad as a falling out as we had, I didn't want her to become the next target for some deity's drunken amusement. I cut the television off. I was in no mood to continue watching. I'd be caught up in even more reminiscing than I'd wanted to. But soon I learned that it was too late. I already was. I couldn't help when I tried to change clothes. I caught a glimpse of the lion tattoo on my right arm. From there I stripped down to my pants. The lion was my middle school's mascot, the same beast that Harrison wore a symbol of. Unless he had gotten the ink of a lion sewn into his shirt, I was the more devoted of us to the beast's power, the strength it held. I remember when I first considered getting it. At that moment, I was thinking of Steve, so perhaps he was somehow loosely tied into my world, both versions, Steve Jobs and Stevie. When I walked into the tattoo parlor, I could feel the ghost of Steve tugging at me, trying to persuade me against my decision. This was the bet all over again. I was taking on the lion's disciple the first time, but the second, I was letting the lion purchase on my body. And there I was in my bedroom, staring at that same mark, the insignia. Perhaps that is why I never once encountered a lion in all of my stay in Africa. The mark served as a ward, a barrier, between the predator and myself, and thankfully, those around me. And maybe that's why the deity that learned of my blithe defiance to danger, chose to strike with baboons instead. I was crying, and I knew it the moment I heard the plop of water droplets against my wooden floor. I wasn't sad, I was furious. I had a foe in some form, out in the world, in the wind, and I couldn't combat their decisions no matter how hard I tried. I was but a speck of dust in their eyes, or whatever they used to gaze down upon this world. How was I to defeat them? Assuming such a feat was possible, how could I make sure to keep entertaining them? Could I be spared then? Would I be? Were they watching me now, choosing the right time? Waiting for me to wrap the noose round my neck so they could deliver the push? The fear of the possibilities cooking up in my head were so intense that it forced my body-mind to split. I was floating there in my living room, watching my body attempting to do the math of things that have transpired in the wake of my choices. Choices regarding friends, loved ones, family. I couldn't do the math without the variables present. I needed the variables present. The next move I made was to my computer, an Apple Macintosh product. Maybe this was my connection to Steve since I bought it to celebrate his success. I did a quick, long internet search. 24 hours was a long trip. The first time, I'd been pumped to start a dream I had long since developed. Currently, I was dreading touching down on this soil for a second time. The end results of my dream were buried here. All remnants of my time in Africa either slowly faded from my conscience, locked in a box in the darkest, ugliest place of my soul. The only things that still existed outside of that box for me was Lex. But right now, I needed to unlock that box and unleash one of my innermost demons. I needed to have a chat with Dende. It seemed that things for a can for Africa, a can for everyone, 
was doing much better these days. The main office that used to be a flimsy tent with large white drapes over it was now a solid building, pristine on the outside with polished walls and windows, two intricately carved wooden doors, and a tiled roof. The inside was just as impressive. There were a few cubicle spaces to my right with diligent workers at their stations, filing, reporting, documenting, etc. There was a slim hallway that went straight through to the back. At the end of the hall was one door. The plaque on the front of it read, Office of ACAACE Director, Florence Michaels. I stepped inside and there sat Director Michaels. He had aged extremely well, still looking young enough to be considered a peer of myself. He looked up at me and I saw the impressive gears in his head accelerate when he spotted me. Mr. Garbarino, he asked. His voice was the only physical feature of his that seemed to have changed since we last saw each other. It was softer now, as if age was eating away at his voice box. Outside may have appeared intact, but his interior was probably suffering as scheduled. Yep, that's me, I replied. I was conflicted. Would I wear my mask for him or not? He knew me before the mask existed, so I kept it off. How have you been? Well, I'm still kicking, same as this place, so I can't complain. I'm happy to see it's still running myself. It meant not everything had ended here with Dende. Director Michaels was quite shaken by the news, to such an extent that rumors circled the campgrounds that he was thinking of pulling the plug on the entire thing. Are you here to volunteer again? He asked with an edge to his voice. I wouldn't want you to feel like you need to. And there was the reason why. He had pitied me, and I couldn't blame him. I didn't stick around very long after Dende's funeral. Three days later, I was a ghost in the camp if people still expected me to return. No, I said. I'm here to see Dende's grave. Would you happen to know where it was moved? Director Florence, as he insisted I call him now, that we were not in a professional relationship, joined myself and a driver to the cemetery where they'd moved Dende to. We initially buried him in Mossel Bay, but when his family got wind of what happened, they wanted him buried with them. Not that with their bodies, they weren't ghosts, but with them in their town. They had their own natural burial ground. Director Florence was more than willing to make their wish come true, and we moved him to his hometown of Disselsdorp. We got there in less than six hours of travel, most of which Florence had stayed asleep. His muscles, also internal, and energy seemed to be reflecting his age more, too. With him asleep, the conversation dropped to nothing. The driver kept his eyes peered on the road, and I was keeping vigil on the brush to the left and right of our jeep. I saw butterflies, birds, and monkeys. No baboons. We made it to Disseldorp, a place I couldn't pronounce, so Florence did all the speaking when we arrived. He went in and found Dende's parents, Akondo and Drusil. They were both around Florence's age, but only Drusil looked it. Akondo was younger than he should. I looked into those deeply shining cobalt eyes, and it was like looking at Dende all over again. I shuddered. Are you Jack? Akondo asked, like he was referring to some higher official, his hands trembling with a pointed finger. Yes, that's... Florence nudged my side and then whispered in my ear, I told these people what you did for your son, and they have come to revere you as a greater man than you might think yourself. Do not shatter their conceptions. I nodded. Yes, sir. I am Jack. I turned to Florence, and he gave a slight nod. I assumed the better I spoke to his parents, the more likely that they wouldn't be broken or disappointed. Thank you for watching over our son, Akondo said. It was my pleasure, sir. I would have taken that bullet if I'd been with him at the time, I can promise you that. We don't want your promises, Jack, Drusil spoke up. Then what is it that you wish of me? I sounded pretentious, but it's what they wanted. We want to thank you. You did save our son, Jack. He wrote back one day, years before he died. The only thing he wrote was of you. 
When he would write home before then, all he would speak of was wanting to come home, Akondo added. You saved our son from a lonely death, and with tears in her eyes that only a mother could shed, she embraced me. Her grip was surprisingly tight for as aged as she looked. I guess she and Florence were polar opposites. She was older on the outside, him on the inside. A condo, I was sure he'd be young on both counts. They led me to Dendi's grave, and he was buried in a row by himself. All the other graves were neatly placed in uniform rows, but his was off in its own little corner. His headstone read the same as it did back at his funeral. Here lies Dende, outstanding student, devoted guardian, and honored son and friend. R.I.P. I turned to his parents and Florence. I'd like a few minutes alone with him, if you please. They all awarded me that and made themselves scarce. When I turned back to his headstone, I envisioned the first version of Dende I'd seen. It morphed from that to his oldest, final version in a few seconds. I envisioned him with a smile. He died with one. He'd have one now if he were standing there. How have you been, Dende? I asked the specter. No real response, but I pictured him saying, I'm doing good, Mr. Garber, you know, how about you? As you can see, I'm in better shape, so I'm doing fine. What do you think about it? There was no actual response, but true to his character, I had to make him answer regardless. I think you're fooling yourself. You're not happy. I was confused now. What do you mean? You've forgotten your dream, the specter said to me. I achieved my dream. I came out here to help kids like you. I did it. I'm good. He was silent. Right. I had to ask him a question. Why do you think I've forgotten my dream? Because you stopped helping us. I stopped because I was done. I wanted a new dream. What's wrong with that? Dreams aren't like work assignments, Mr. Garbarino. You can't just pluck one from a bulletin board and say, Ooh, this dream should work nicely. So what? I can only have one dream per life. The specter was gone. I had nothing else to say to someone that didn't wish to listen, so I, too, left. That trip was not worth it in the end. I had learned nothing. I had gotten no closer in my goal to learn why things were happening the way they were around me. Dende said that I still had a dream to follow through on, but my dream was over and done with, wasn't it? The first time the hedonists tried to remove me from this world, I had just dropped out of college, reeling from my mother's passing. What had stopped them? I met Amber. I started the diet. I went to the gym. Were they mocking my truest attempts to stay alive after they had spared me? I would laugh at someone who did just the opposite. The person who ruined their life after being given a second chance was the joke. I was an inspiration. Dende had mentioned that I wasn't done helping people, being their rock, their coach, their role model. Was that why I was alive now? Because I still had a purpose? It seemed legitimate to think so, but Dende was much younger than me. I'm sure he still had a purpose, or would have had one if only he'd been just grazed by that damned bullet. I didn't think of the grim intricacies of what Dende's role was in the grand scheme of things too much, because the only conclusion that I could reach was that he was simply to be my jumping-off point. I didn't want to believe it, but here he was again, as a ghost, and he had set me on that path once more. I was going to do something meant to help others, and not just children, grown-ups, people in all phases of their life. I still had seven hours left in my flight back to California, and I was in no rush to get to sleep. And I wanted to. I wouldn't be able to. I had to think of the deaths of all my other important people. My parents. I could only take those at face value without tearing up again. They were my parents. They were older, and it was natural for a child to outlive their folks. Steve, however, his death was a trigger for me too, but I had to gamble there was more behind that. Steve was a successful man, one who employed many, and I'm sure they all had reasons, either just one or one thousand, to love and or respect him. Even after he abandoned me when we were children, I could sound off ten reasons to respect him this very instant. He was my friend. He was nice. He was driven. He was compassionate. He was brilliant. He was a good father. He was a loyal husband. 
He was talented. He was Stevie. He was Steve. He had built up his company, his reputation, and all from a single idea. He developed it, promoted it, designed it, expanded it, shared it. I could understand now why he could pass on. His dream was going to be able to go on beyond his life, and that was nothing to sneeze at. Leaving behind an empire, it's something only the truest of visionaries could hope to achieve. I wasn't a visionary, but I wanted my mark on this world to expand beyond my lifespan. I was in my 50s. My life was already half over. I had no illusions I would make it to see a hundred. If I did, then the hedonists were simply just a bunch of assholes who truly applied no order to the things they did. If I had to guess, I'd give myself a good 25, maybe 30 more years before I bit the dust. I was going to do something incredible before then. First, I had to talk to Andre. Whatever he was thinking, I knew I'd want to give it a shot. I had no ideas of my own, so at the very least, his proposal could inspire me. No, I had another stop to make first. I wanted to know that the hedonists could try and own me all they wanted, but I was not bending a knee. I was going to throw a spear. And that's what I stuck on my right breast. I went to the same tattoo parlor and got my second set of ink. It was of a gladiator standing on the edge of a mountain. The implication was that the mountain pierced the heavens and that I was facing the hedonists' deities with a long spear in my hand. I had on the helmet with red fluff on top, the gilded armor, the open-toed boots, and a red cape. It was plastered permanently right above my heart. My heart was in this to combat the fiends that dared to control my world the way they did. I wanted to be authentic and knew that my full head of hair would not permit me to wear such a helmet, so I went to the barber next and had my head shaved clean, my beard trimmed down until it was a neat, well-groomed mustache-goatee combination. I went home immediately after. I hadn't allowed myself to rest since getting off of the plane. I was hungry, but in no mood to cook anything, so I went straight to my bedroom and fell asleep as quickly as I could. I knew now that Dende, as always, with his infallible wit and wisdom, was right. I hadn't been following my dreams, I'd been neglecting them, but this time the dream came roaring with a vengeance. I was in the living room of my current apartment and was fully dressed. I was dressed for a marathon. I had on a red muscle shirt, dark sweatpants, with a gray streak down the middle of the pants legs. The room was empty otherwise. I was startled by a sudden flash of light, the flashes that cameras give off, and it was followed by the click of the image capture, but I'm afraid all it snapped a portrait of was me shielding my eyes from the flash. Now I stood in a street. It wasn't empty, but cars weren't what traversed it, but a marathon of faceless people. They all had on the same outfit as I did. Who were these faceless people? Where were the cameras that took photos? That last question was targeted to the cameras that took the previous series of photos and to the ones that were snapping them now. After the series of flashes, I was now dressed in a nice suit, standing before a crowd of people. They too were faceless. In the very back was a small cluster of people. I could just barely make out their darker complexions against the darkness. The jungle children were here? I didn't know what was happening, but I looked down at my cue cards. I subtly shuffled through them, but they each contained the same message written across them in perfect cursive. They all read, read. I disregarded them and searched the audience. Without faces to react to, I had no clue if what I said next would be taken well or not, or if I should use those cues to change the tone of my voice or adjust my body language. I couldn't make them wait any longer. Hi, my name is... I don't know what I was expecting, but I was blindsided by a third set of camera flashes. When my vision corrected itself, I was smiling. I couldn't help it. Whatever my dream was doing, it had hit its mark this time. I was standing before a wide, jumbo-screen TV. It was just hovering right in front of me, like this world only consisted of it and myself. I was able to stand or float there and watch some of my happiest memories pass before my eyes. They went by in no particular order, chronological or otherwise, but they were all happy. Whether the happiness was fleeting or if it ended badly, 
This screen caught the moment that happiness slashed at my cheeks with a smile. I saw the time I had lost my first tooth and had awoken to find a dollar underneath my bed. The next one after that was the day I'd met Steve Jobs. It was in passing in the halls. One of the meaner children had pushed me and I dropped my milk. Thankfully, it was still closed. Steve picked it up and handed it to me. I missed the next few because the tears streaming from my eyes needed to be wiped and they were persistent little pests. The third memory I had seen was the ending to my first date with Amber. We had went to a movie and dinner. Lame? Yes. Fun? Yes. Kiss at the end? Yes. The fourth and fifth were memories that involved my father and church. I had forgotten all about those since church was a taboo place and subject for me and my mother for most of my life. The first of the two memories was my father taking a picture with me, us in matching suits. The second was of me watching him console our pastor who'd received news of one of his family members passing in mid-sermon. Lots more passed, ones I'd forgotten because of the stress of the end results. There were times when Dende and I would return the spotted tarantulas to the brush together. Another time was when Amber and I were fighting constantly. Not a happy moment, I know, but we also had angry sex, too. I guess shallow happiness still counted. I didn't know why I was seeing all of those times then. Was I dying? I wasn't sure. Now that I had everything to lose, would those bastards in the unfair heavens rip me from this world? Was my life flashing before my eyes? It seemed like a faraway idea in my mind. Dying? I had no time for it. I turned away from the screen and looked into a large, black expanse. Nothing existed there, not even the light coming off of the screen behind me. It was a void, and I felt if I stepped forward, I would be lost. But if I turned around, I would be lost anyway. I turned to my chest and removed my shirt. I stared hard at the gladiator tattoo inked on my skin. I said that I was not going to cow to the heavenly powers that be. I wouldn't. Won't. I clenched my fist tight, gritted my teeth, and leered into the void. I raised my fist and gave a deadly warning. My true prescription, it's... I trailed off because my voice had choked off, but I knew what I wanted to say. And it wasn't just that one word that was being choked off. I found it increasingly hard to breathe. I was gasping for air in a vacuum. No air, no oxygen. I was dying. I felt the darkness closing in around me. I turned and faced the screen. It was losing brightness, the settings bar for it lowering to the lowest grade of brightness it had. Then it vanished into the void. I smiled. I was not going to die in my dream and leave a look of fear on my real-world face. If Andre or Lex came in and found my body, I wanted them to know I died happy. If the screen had stayed right now, this moment would be playing on it. My last moment would be my last sight. I would be fine with that. The darkness snatched me and swallowed me whole. I woke with a long, and I mean long, inhalation. I gripped my throat and felt the warmth of my Adam's apple. I touched myself all over and everything was warm. I was alive, but still surrounded by darkness. I climbed out of bed and raced to the lamp near my bedroom door. I turned it on, and the blaze of light was searing as I kept my opens wide open, but I was happy to see I was in a familiar place again. I wasn't being tortured by things I couldn't see or hear. I snapped my fingers to test the ladder. My ears worked just fine. I just stood stationary for a time, stunned. I didn't make a move, wouldn't, not until I was positive I wasn't dreaming anymore. I was fine with having dreams, as in goals, but having dreams while I slept. I couldn't take that anymore. I sure hoped they had pills that could restrain one's subconscious from running amok, but if they did, I'm sure they would become America's next top drug. It had been almost an hour when I finally wiggled my toes. I inched closer and closer to my bed when I finally decided the dream was over. I could go to bed. However, sleeping in it, that wasn't happening by choice. If I fall asleep tonight, it was going to be my sheer loss of the fight to stay awake, not by choice. I woke up the next morning, dangerously close to the afternoon, and got dressed quickly. I found my cell phone and had four missed calls and a text message from Andre, 
I unlocked my phone and terminated the missed calls. The message said, I know you're just getting back from Africa, so you don't have to come in today. However, I need you to make sure you make up today on the weekend. And that was doable. I had a quick breakfast and got ready to spend my day reflecting on Dende's last words to me. The specter Dende, not the real Dende. He'd said, You've forgotten your dream. I knew what dream he meant the moment he said that, but I wanted to fight against it to declare that I'd wanted a new point to my life. The specter argued and said dreams can't be manufactured, but if not, how does one determine their dream? When I founded my dream of helping people, it was simply so I could do something honorable with my mother's life insurance. I hadn't thought I'd made a life commitment. Well, I hadn't back then. Now, with this fresh tattoo, which was still covered for the time being while the skin settled, I all but said I would devote my entire being to a just cause. A cause to help those like Dende. I was the gladiator, one of the people who entertain, who tickle the spirits of higher forces. That's what I was now. What I was before, it filled me with unbearable guilt and dread. I was happy when I met with Lex and Andre after dinner. I didn't need to be alone with my thoughts right now. Company was the enemy of insanity. He remembered you after all these years? Lex asked, referring to Florence. Yeah, it shocked me too, I said. Though if I showed up now, he may have to blink to adjust to the change. I rubbed my bare scalp. I don't blame him, Andre said. The cue ball look fits you, but it certainly makes you look like a different person. That was sort of the point. I rubbed my head once more and then lowered both hands to my lap. I was being worshipped by Dende's parents, and as much as that showed me the true depth of their respect for me, it felt like too much. I wasn't the saint they saw me for. I felt bad pretending to be one, but Florence assured me they needed it more than the real me. But it was the real you, Lex stated. The actions were me, yes, but not the man they thought was behind them. Well, then use this transformation of yours to be the man they saw you to be, Andre commented. That was a thought. Speaking of thoughts. Andre, you've been working on something lately, jotting down notes every time we exercise together, before and after. Mind telling me what you've been cooking up? He and Lex turned to each other and exchanged cheeky smiles. She would be in on it. Brother and sister, these two didn't hide much from another, if anything. I'll be right back. Andre excused himself from the dinner table and jogged inside of the house. I leaned over closer to Lex. Any hints as to what I should be expecting? A good laugh, Lex said. That was all the information I needed. Lex and Andre may share everything, but Lex and I understand everything about each other. Andre returned to the table with a binder beneath his arm. It was thin, but I could see sheets of paper sticking out from the small pile within. He slammed the binder down on the table. On the front of the binder was a taped label. On the label was written, Can you move? I withheld a laugh. Lex was right. Um, Andre, what's this? I asked, without letting a single chuckle slip between my teeth. Our new game show, he said with such spirit that I had to let him continue. It's a physical contest that will require the contestants to complete our exercises in time limits faster than their competitors or simply to last the longest in certain positions. Like our box exercise could be a one-on-one -on -one contestant competition, or we could make it a tag team deal where the partners would have to work with two stacks of boxes. The first teammate would have to construct a new stack from the boxes of the tower they're deconstructing. The second teammate would deconstruct that tower to make their own. The first team to do that and the reverse of that would be the winners. Oh, and the couch exercise would obviously be a team race. That's pretty self-explanatory. The chair exercises would be to see who can hold their chair perpendicular to their arms the longest. I wanted to laugh some more, but the ideas weren't half bad. He had a binder of notes. Perhaps this could work out. He seemed to want it perfect before bringing it before me. The real question was, why was he bringing it to me? He had made connections through his moving company. He could have started this on his own. So I asked him in a different, less confrontational way. 
Why have you, haven't tried, you tried to get this produced before? It sounds pretty good to me, I said. My peripheral vision was still poorer than most people's, but I could see the silent surprise written all over Lex's face. I wanted to bring this to you first because you've done all the real research. You were the one who developed the exercises. I'd never take credit from you like that. Well, let me reward your loyalty with honesty, I told him as a warning. I think it's a good idea, I do, but it's not what I think would be best to get these exercises across the state, the country. Andre took the blow harder than I expected, but his eyes grew much softer when Lex enclosed one of her hands around one of his. You're the inventor, you decide. But I think you're on the right track, I said. I think a televised segment of the exercises would be a good way to spread the word about it, and as for your title, with a little tweaking, we could have something. His eyes brightened immediately. You think so? Yes, but this is going to take some time to nail down. We can't simply ask a major TV network to allow us to come onto their set so we can move furniture around. This is a unique thing. We have to make people see its uniqueness. Something about it has to charm people into wanting to do it, too. What things could we do to make it more likely to be accepted by the masses? There are four things I know we'll need to do if we want it to be picked up. One... We'll need people to understand the ease of this type of workout compared to those at the gym. Two, we'll need a catchy name, one that's simple as Neptune Fitness, but with more of a zip, a call to action. A name that will make people say, oh, I can do that. It sounds like it'd be worth a shot. Three, we need to get funding. Without that, the first bullet point wouldn't be possible unless we get a sponsor or a commercial deal, getting onto major television will be impossible. And four, we'll need an insignia. For the insignia, why not use your lion tattoo? Lex asked. I would, but I want this to be something new. I don't want any part of my former life to coexist with this vision. Why not use the tattoo you have hidden from us? Andre suggested, pointing at the lump underneath my shirt. I can still smell the faint traces of ink, and that looks an awful lot like the bandage they conceal fresh tattoos under. I looked down at my breast, contemplating the logic of using a gladiator for a logo. After a few minutes, I had my answer. I like the thought there, but I think it's too aggressive a picture. We're trying to go for simple tasks that can be repurposed as workouts. An insignia of a gladiator would kind of contradict that message since gladiators had a tendency to die in combat. What we need now is something just as simple but alluring. Let's not fret about it all right now. We'll take our time, we'll get it right, and we'll help people around the world learn to lose weight, even if it takes cities, one at a time, to do so. Chapter 12 right half of the board. And that, up until very recently, has been my life's story. It's not over, not yet. Still plenty I'm hoping to achieve. Over the next year and a half, Lex, Andre, and I worked painstakingly long to come to terms of what I wanted my exercises to be. Nice, fun, affordable actions that anyone would be capable of. No need to squander your money at GYMs or as I like to call them, foundations where you give your money away. I had no intentions of taking someone's hard-earned money in exchange for their health. There was nothing noble about that. Well, unless you were a doctor, but they saved lives. I've never once heard from anyone I've known that the gym saved their life. They said they needed it, but not any longer. Not with my new exercise, which me and my partners dubbed the movement. We've yet to adopt an insignia, but it's hard to develop one for a loosely banded set of exercises as we had hammered out. And yes, I am going to defy the hedonist assholes, twisting things for their enjoyment. I still am. I'm alive. I'm kicking back. And I'm on the losing side, at least for now. I spent a good deal of time on their side, I realized one day. I remembered what Amber had said her main reason for wanting to divorce me was. I was dragging her around the world, quite literally, 
to service my whims, aspirations, and dreams. In return, I belittled hers so that she felt there was no true love between us. I was one of the hedonistic assholes. That's why they kept me alive. They saw I had the heartstrings of a woman I could tug on, and I did. But now, I wasn't that man. I was me, Jack Garbarino. I was going to stay me, this new, more bold, confident version of me. I was going to try and make something that could live beyond me. Half my life was spent on the wrong half of the board. Now I was playing the half I needed to. I was going to make sure I ended my life on this side, just like Steve Jobs, Dende, and my parents. This gladiator was ready to make his mark. The End well, thanks everyone for joining me for the reading of the great American novel known as The Movement, How I Got This Body by Never Going to the Gym in My Life by Jack Garbarino. Hope you found some enjoyment in the eight hours of this loveliness. Take care, be kind to each other, and we'll see you next time, I guess.